after Job lost his children and his health and all of his worldly property almost, and then after he and his friends spent 35 chapters arguing about why that was, and Job spent a bulk of those chapters pointing his finger in God's face and saying that God had been unfair, and then after God, for four chapters, rebukes Job and reminds him that he and not Job is God, we come now finally to chapter 42, where we read, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels, and a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, and the second Keziah, and the third Karin Hapuch. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years, and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations And Job died, an old man and full of days. And if this book had been written in the 1800s, it might have ended with those well-known words, and they all lived happily ever after. That would certainly be true to this story. Job's life drew to a close just like the fairy tales do, only this story is nonfiction. This is no fable. The Lord really did restore the fortunes of Job, verse 10. Job's misery really was turned into mirth. And there are a great many life lessons to be drawn this morning from this fairy tale ending, from this real life story of tragedy and triumph. But before we begin drawing lessons, I want you just for a moment to sit back and enjoy this chapter. Isn't Job 42 a beautiful ending to the book, for drawing out our emotions, for teaching us to hold on in the midst of pain, 
for reminding us that in Christ we really do have a hope and a future. And simply for bringing a little bit of happy moisture to our eyes, this is surely one of the most stirring and sweet chapters in the Bible. Job's latter days really were a real-life fairy tale. And I want for us, first of all, this morning, just to enjoy the story, enjoy the ending, and with it, enjoy God's goodness. God is so good to us. And I want to remind you that while Job chapter 42 is not necessarily the pattern from which God cuts the fabric of every believer's life, this chapter is a kind of real-life parable. This chapter does teach us something about our own lives, about the Christian life. That is to say that while God may not reverse your fortunes in exactly the same way that he reversed Job's, he is going someday to reverse the fortunes of each and every one of his people. A day is coming on the other side of that cold river of death when our Heavenly Father will make everything right again. He will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain, says Revelation 21. There is a reversal of fortunes coming for us all. And that's good news. We may not always experience it as Job did in the here and now. Indeed, while we may not even get a whiff of it in the here and now, we must know that a reversal of fortunes is coming. Job's experience will one day somehow be our own. Jesus is coming to make all things new, he says in Revelation 21 Five. And we'll come back to those thoughts in just a few moments and draw some parallels and applications from Job's reversal of fortunes. But before we do that, I want to point out to you another overarching lesson that you can glean from this final chapter of Job. Not only are we reminded in these final 17 verses that God loves to make all things new for his people, but we're also reminded particularly in observing Job's response to God's chastisements of the purifying power of pain. Preaching on this final chapter of Job's life, John Piper, whom some of you heard this morning, makes this incredibly concise and poignant summary statement. The book of Job closes with the sediment of pride strained out of Job's life through the sieve of suffering. That's an incredibly helpful sentence, not only for its imagery, but for its content. Listen to it again and soak up what he is saying. The book closes with the sediment of pride strained out of Job's life through the sieve of suffering. In other words, Job's suffering had an incredible effect in his life. It made him more godly, as we see in these first six verses. It made him more Christ-like. It made him more humble. It made him less apt to think that he had all the answers. His suffering made him more prone to seek the face of God and less prone to rely upon himself. And again, we see those changes in effect in his words in verses 1 through 6. Job was a changed man. The sediment, the residue, the dregs of pride had been strained out of Job's life. Partially through the shaking motion of God's strong rebukes in chapters 38 through 41, but also partially through the purifying sieve of pain. 
for Job, pain had a filtering effect in his life. It showed him how impotent he really was and how much he really needed God. It taught him, in Paul's words, not to trust in himself, but to trust in God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 1.9 Pain had a purifying effect for Job. And haven't you found, those of you who have suffered, this same principle at work in your own life? I have to admit that personally I'm a neophyte when it comes to suffering, but I'm sure that many of you could readily testify of how grief or sickness or disappointment or constant physical pain or the frustrations of older age have smoothed off many of the rough edges in your life and character. Because you've suffered, you're not as quick to judge others as you used to be. You aren't as quick to think that you can do it all. Because you've suffered, some of you have come to a place where you realize you can't do what you used to do. And so now, because you can't do what you used to do, you pray like you didn't used to pray when you were 20 or 30. Some of you are more patient now than you were before you suffered. And the list could go on, I'm sure. This is why the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, who suffered greatly, his wife was an invalid. He had a lifelong bout with the gout, and he faced public opposition and slander to his ministry unlike anything we see today. And he once wrote, this man who suffered so much, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. If some men that I know could be only favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. And he knew that from experience. Pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, has a way of humbling us. And when someone who loves the Lord is humbled, he retreats more and more to the strength of Jesus and more and more to the haven of prayer. And in that way, for Job and for us, pain is purifying. And therefore, though we hate difficulty and suffering in so many ways, and in some of those ways we are right to hate it, as it is a reflection of sin in the world and so on. But though we hate difficulty and suffering, sometimes rightly, we need also to learn to embrace difficulty and suffering too for the cleansing and humbling and softening effect they can have on our souls. That is to say that if we cannot see any other good that God is working in our suffering, I hope we can at least see that God has given us, 2 Corinthians 1, 9, the sentence of death within ourselves. That God has allowed our agony so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's a very good thing if we come to that place. So there is a purifying power in pain. That's one lesson to be drawn from Job 42, particularly from the transition that we followed all the way until this point and now seeing Job, a humbled man. But the main application this morning, as we already noticed, may be summed up by the phrase, all things new. All things new. I say again that Job's reversal of fortunes is for us a parable. It's a real life parable. It's not just a story. It actually happened, but it is a parable nonetheless. That is to say that God through Job's reversal of fortunes, wants to teach us something about how he will also deal with us. 
just as our sufferings will surely differ in the details from Job's sufferings, so our reversals of fortune will probably not read exactly like Job 42. But I hope that we will learn from this chapter that God does love to reverse our fortunes. That God does love to renew us and to restore our souls. I hope we will be able to see our own faces this morning reflected in the refreshing pool of Job 42. And so to that end, I invite you just to walk through the chapter with me, to ponder it with me now in three portions. Number one, the restoration of Job's faith in verses 1 through 6. Secondly, the restoration of Job's friends in verses 7 through 9. And then finally, the restoration of Job's fortunes in verses 10 through 17. The restoration of Job's faith, the restoration of Job's friends, and then the restoration of Job's fortunes. And we'll begin, as we said, in verses 1 through 6 with the restoration of Job's faith. It wasn't that Job didn't have faith or even that his faith wasn't strong. As we learned back in chapters 1 and 2, Job was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Job's life was pleasing to the Lord. And without faith, Hebrews 11.6, it is impossible to please him. So Job surely was a man of faith. But during the course of his months-long battle with sickness, and as he had more and more time to consider the loss of his wealth and his ten children, Job's faith had gotten derailed. His thinking about God and about God's dealing with himself had run off the tracks of trusting God in all things and into the barren fields of doubt and anger and resentment towards God. His faith had been derailed. He even questioned, as we've seen, God's goodness and God's justice and God's wisdom. He came to the conclusion in chapter 16, verse 9, that God was his adversary. And in chapter 9, 17, that God had wounded him without cause. He was angry with God. And he had, as it were, spent a good deal of time poking his accusing finger into God's chest. Job's faith, for the better part of chapters 3 through 37, had been derailed. But here, in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, and after God's strong but merciful rebuke in the previous chapters, we see Job's faith being restored. Just read those first six verses again with me. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Can you hear the difference between what we heard from Job's lips in chapters 3 through 31 and what Job said here? It's quite remarkable, isn't it? Job had taken God's finger out of God's chest, or his own finger out of God's chest and taken his fist out of God's face. And if we can picture him, he had kind of shoved his hands in his pockets the way someone does when they're embarrassed and shy to speak, hanging his head low. And it wasn't just that he was embarrassed. It was that he realized that God knew better than he did and that he was being restored to confidence in that fact. Job's faith was being restored. And let me just notice three different ways that it was. 
first, Job's faith in God's sovereignty was reinforced. His faith in God's sovereignty, God's control over his life was reinforced. Now, we said a couple of weeks back that Job never lost confidence that God was in control. He may not have liked the way God was exercising his control, but Job never actually questioned that God was in control. He understood, chapter 23, 16, that it was God who had made his spirit to faint, that it was God who had charge over when and how and how long Job suffered. He knew that, but it needed reinforcing. Job needed not merely to acknowledge God's sovereignty, but to embrace it to be thankful for it, to take comfort in it. And that's what we finally see him doing here in verse 2, isn't it? I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In the past he said, God, you're sovereign and I don't like it. You're doing this for no good reason. And now he's still saying, God, you're sovereign. But he's saying it in a whole different way and in a whole different tone of voice, isn't he? Job already knew that God was sovereign. By the hearing of the ears, verse 5. But now in his suffering and in God's rebuke, he was learning that God was sovereign by the seeing of the eyes. In other words, Job had always believed in God's sovereignty in his head. But now he was experiencing it and embracing it experientially. And having experienced the sovereignty of God at its most difficult pitch in chapters 1 and 2, and then having received God's rebuke for his kicking against it, In chapters 38 through 41, Job's confidence in God's sovereign goodness is actually reinforced. He was able to say now without a tinge of regret or bitterness, I know that you can do all things. And it could be that some of you need your confidence in God's sovereignty reinforced in just the same way this morning. Perhaps your circumstances have made you wonder in the quietness of your heart, if God's really in control after all. Or perhaps, though you believe that God is in control, you, like Job, haven't particularly cared for the way in which he's exercised that control in your life. And in either case, if that is you this morning, my prayer is that God would do for you what he does for Job, that God would so restore your faith that you would be able to say with Job in a, a loving, thankful voice, I know that you can do all things, that you'd be able to say that not mingled with threats and grudges against God, but with thankfulness and gladness. I hope that you will say that through our studies in Job, your faith in God's sovereignty has been reinforced. Second, though, Job's faith was restored in that his faith in God's wisdom was renewed. His faith in God's sovereignty was reinforced. His faith in God's wisdom was renewed. You'll remember again from chapters 3 through 31 that Job didn't actually think that God was behaving very wisely. He didn't think God was doing a very good job as sovereign of the universe. He actually thought, as far as his own circumstances were concerned, that God had blown it. He believed, chapter 19, verse 6, that God had wronged him. He thought God was being unjust. He wondered aloud in chapter 10, verse 3, if God was doing what is right. Is it right for you to do this, he says? But as we said last week, Job didn't have all the information that God had, did he? Job didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. He wasn't as wise as he thought he was. And here, in verses 3 and 4, he's finally able to admit that. I've declared that which I did not understand, verse 3. Therefore, verse 4, here now, 
I will ask you, and you instruct me. Do you hear the difference? In chapters 3 through 31, Job is lecturing God. But now Job is asking God to instruct him. His confidence in his own wisdom has been abased and his confidence in God's wisdom has been renewed. God, I know that you know far better than I do. That's what he's saying in verses 3 and 4. You know better than I do. And would that we could all say that. God, you know better than I do. And not just say it from the pulpit or not just say it when things are going well or we read the book of Job, but when we're in the hospital or when we're in the funeral home, that we could say, God, you know better than I do. I don't understand this. I don't particularly feel good about it, but you know better than I do. And again, that's my prayer for you. As we've studied this book of suffering, that God would remind you that he knows what's best, that he has a lot more information than you have, that he is the only wise God, and that knowing that, you would respond with faith rather than with fury when God allows the difficult and the unexpected to crash onto the shoreline of your life. So Job's faith in God's sovereignty was reinforced. His faith in God's wisdom was renewed. Thirdly, Job's faith in himself was retracted. His faith in himself was retracted. He says in verse 5, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, verse 6, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Isn't that great? The ashes that Job has been using for their medicinal effect to keep the itching down, the ashes that Job has been using as a symbol of his own misery are now transformed into a symbol of his repentance. I repent in dust and ashes. I don't any longer wallow in dust and ashes so that people can feel sorry for me and so that I can feel better in my body, but now these dust and ashes are a sign of my repentance. Job was now willing to confess that he no longer placed any confidence in himself, that his faith in himself had been recanted, had been retracted. Now this is simply the flip side of the previous point, isn't it? Of course it stands to reason that if Job's confidence in God was renewed, that his confidence in himself would have to be retracted. But it's easier to see that correlation than it is to live it, isn't it? Because none of us like to retract our confidence in ourselves. None of us like to admit that we were wrong. None of us like to admit that we've been foolish. None of us like to admit that we don't really know what's best for our own lives. To say that cuts across everything that our sinful natures would like to believe and across everything that our Western culture urges us to believe from the cradle to the grave. You are the master of your destiny. You have rights. You are the final judge and arbitrator in all things pertaining to your personal life. That's what both nature and culture tell us. And so we don't like to retract. We don't like to repent in dust and ashes. We like to be in control, but we're not in control. And the book of Job teaches us that God knows better than we do, that in comparison to him, we actually know very little. This book reminds us that there's a great deal that we do not understand, verse 3, and that there are many things that are too wonderful for us. And we do well to remember that and to retract any self-confidence or self-reliance in which we're boasting or to which we're clinging. Before we leave this point, the restoration of Job's faith, 
it needs to be pointed out, I think, that God was the one who did the restoring. God was the one who did the restoring. It wasn't that Job stopped himself in the middle of his ranting and raving in chapters 3 through 31 and said, you know, what am I talking about? Maybe I've gotten ahead of myself. I'm actually having second thoughts, Eliphaz. Maybe God is wiser than we've been giving him credit for. That's not what happens, is it? In fact, John Newton, the old Anglican pastor who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, has said comically but perceptively of Job and his friends, if God had not interposed, had they lived to this day, they would have continued the dispute. And the key phrase is, if God had not interposed. For what Newton understood was that Job and his friends were very unlikely to stop arguing on their own. And one central reason for that is because Job was not going to renew his faith on his own. He was angry. He was hurt. He was totally off track. And it was only as God interposed in chapters 38 through 41 that Job came to his senses and that his faith was restored and reinvigorated. God had to intervene. And that's why I've said several times things like, it is my prayer that you would realize X or I've been praying that you would renew that God would renew your faith in these ways. I've been saying I pray for you in this because we all, when our faith gets derailed, desperately need God to intervene, God to speak, God to come and help us. Our circumstances are such and our sin natures are such that we don't come to our senses just on our own. Perhaps this book of Job has been the very imposition of God that you need to help you come to your senses. Perhaps he'll do it in another way. But to whatever extent that you may need your fresh, your faith refreshed this morning, I pray that God would indeed interpose. It could be for you that, like Job, you need fresh confidence in God's sovereignty or in God's wisdom. Or it could be that you need restored confidence that God loves you or that He really has forgiven you or that He really does hear your prayers or that He really does care about your hurts and sorrows. I would say, I think, that all of us in one way or another need our faith refreshed and restored this morning. That's one reason why we come to this building every week, isn't it? Because we need week after week after week refreshing and reminding of God's goodness and God's power and God's love and God's Son. So my prayer for you and for myself goes something like this. God, we turn our eyes to you and say that we believe like Job, but we need you to help our unbelief like Job. We need you to restore our faith. God, we know that you are in the business of restoration. We know that you love to make all things new. So make our faith new this morning. Help us regain our confidence in you. Send us away with the good words of Job on our lips. I know that you can do all things. That's my prayer for you. And that's the first point, the restoration of Job's faith. Now, secondly, and much more briefly, the restoration of Job's friends. We may not think too highly of Job's friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, but apparently God cared for them. You can read about that in verses 7 through 9. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, 
My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. Isn't it wonderful to see that God forgave not only Job, but his friends as well? And that God apparently, wonderfully, restored their interpersonal relationships too. God loves to forgive and God loves to restore people. I hope that gives you optimism in regard to broken relationships in your own life. God may well change that person's heart. God may well forgive his or her sins. And God may use your prayers as the instrument through which he accomplishes it. Job prayed for his friends, verse 8, and God heard his prayer and repaired their relationship, both with himself and with Job. And he may yet do that for that estranged or seemingly unreachable person in your And you know, there is in these verses a beautiful picture also of the gospel of Jesus, is there not? Did God wave a magic wand over Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and declare them forgiven and clean? Of course not. A blood sacrifice was needed, just like a blood sacrifice is always needed. In this case, seven bulls and seven rams in verse 8. For as the author of Hebrews tells us, without shedding blood, there is no remission of sins. And so God had them sacrifice these bulls and these rams. Why was that? Why did God require these Old Testament people to sacrifice all these animals in order to be washed clean of their sins? Well, because he wanted to leave them plenty of breadcrumbs, as it were, that would lead them to Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. Jesus shed his blood, didn't he, to pay the penalty for our sins and for those of Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar and Job and all through the Old Testament. God was reminding people that they needed such a sacrifice. And even here in the book of Job, God was preparing the way for Jesus. God was picturing Jesus for these men. And he does not merely picture Jesus through the sacrifices. Notice also in verse 8 that Job's friends needed a go-between. They could not come to God on their own. They needed a mediator, a go-between, a priest, if you will. And in this particular case, God slipped the priest's smock over the head of Job and said to Eliphaz, go to my servant Job, and my servant Job will pray for you. And here's the kicker, still from verse 8. I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. And isn't that exactly what God says to us in the gospel? I will accept him, Jesus, so that I may not do with you according to your folly. That's exactly what God says. God doesn't say, I expect you to clean yourself up so that I may not do with you according to your folly. I expect you to clean yourself up so that I can accept you. That's not what he says, not for a moment. 
God knows that we can never do it. And so instead, God accepts him on our behalf. And even as we grow in our faith, as we should, it is never the case that God accepts our growth as a means of being or staying right with him. From first to last, both when we are immature baby Christians and when we are seasoned godly saints, our acceptance is in another. I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. That's good news. That is the good news. You don't have to rescue yourself from the fires of hell. Instead, God points to Jesus and says, I'll accept him so that I may not do with you as you deserve. It's a beautiful foreshadowing of it right here on this final page of the book of Job as Job's friends were restored through a mediator who made a blood sacrifice on their behalf. Have you been restored like that? Have you put your trust in Jesus, the sacrifice who, 1 Peter 3.18, died for sins once for all to bring us to God? Have you put your hope in Jesus, the high priest, who, according to 1 Timothy 2.5, is the one mediator between God and man, the one go-between, the one person, the only person about whom God will say, I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly? Have you put your hope in that person? And if not, would you not this morning? Would you not cry out to Jesus right here, right now, for mercy and grace? Jesus loves to make all things new. He loves to grant sinners like us a new start with God and new found forgiveness and a new and better way of living and a new heart and a new family of faith, the church. And if you would call out to him today, he would surely make all those things new for you. Now then, having seen the restoration of Job's faith and the restoration of Job's friends, let's turn our attention finally to the restoration of Job's fortunes. And again, I'd like to ask you to follow along as I reread now verses 10 through 17. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, And they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima and the second, Keziah, and the third, Karen Hapuch. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job, verse 10. That's the main point here. His relationships were restored in verse 11a. His wealth was restored in verse 11b. His property was restored in verse 12. His family was rebuilt in verses 13 through 15. And since, verse 16, after this, Job lived 140 years, it also stands to reason that his health must have been restored too. 
God did indeed make all things new for Job. And while he may not always make all things new in this world, nor will he always make all things new for us in exactly the same way he did for Job, God will someday for each of his children who struggle and suffer make all things new. I can't help as I read these last eight verses of the book of Job but think about the new heavens and the new earth where God promises to restore all our fortunes completely. So it seemed like too far of a stretch to say that Job's earthly restoration is meant for us as a parable of eternity. A believer in the prosperity gospel might rebuke me at this point and tell me that if Christians just had enough faith, we would all experience in the here and now the same kind of reversals that Job did in the here and now. But I don't find that taught anywhere in Scripture. I certainly don't see it in the stories of New Testament believers like Stephen who was stoned to death in Acts 7 and died in great agony, never reaching on this side of eternity his own personal Job 42. But what I do see all through the Bible are passages that seem to describe the new heavens and the new earth and that sound almost exactly like Job 42. For instance, Isaiah 11, 6 through 9 The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That sounds a little bit like Job 42, I think. The details are different, but the idea of complete reversal of all that is wrong is the same as it is in Job 42. And in Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 5, the same note is struck this time even more clearly, I think. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Doesn't that sound a little bit like what God, God did for Job here in the final chapter of this book? It does for me. And so I conclude that while the final eight verses of Job may not be the normal experience of the average Christian in the here and now, This Job-like reversal of fortunes is still something that each of us should look forward to experiencing in our own lives. Not necessarily in the here and now, but certainly in the there and then. And when Jesus returns and ushers in an eternity of endless, unparalleled, bodily experienced bliss, I think some of us may just hearken back to an autumn Sunday morning spent in the last chapter of the book of Job and be amazed 
at what God has done. So what is it for you? I hope most of all you look forward to seeing Jesus face to face, to seeing him as he is, to being with him in person forever. But when you think about him making all things new for you, what is it that you most look forward to? Reunion with loved ones who have gone before? New joints? New eyes? New lungs? Cancer eradicated? Diabetes wiped away? A planet no longer polluted by sin? Villagers who no longer have to walk five miles for water? Old emotional scars completely healed and gone away? Seeing that person who died with Alzheimer's completely in his right mind again? Or better than all of the above, old sin habits expelled once and for all? Each and every one of these experiences and countless others will someday be reality. To quote John Piper once more, what we have lost, God will restore that and himself forevermore. If we could only see the future, the new heavens and the new earth would make Job 42 seem almost like nothing in comparison to what God has in store for those who love him. Do you believe that? If you are his and he is yours, Jesus is coming to restore your fortunes. And while you wait with Job on the ash heap of this world, remember his promise. Behold, I am making all things new.